0: Welcome to the City of Refuge Church Podcast. We are so excited that you have joined us. We are a church that is called, connected, and commissioned. We want to call all people to repent and believe in our Savior's loving grace. We want to connect our neighborhood to the unity found in the greater family of Christ. We want to commission others to live as kingdom citizens before the world and heaven. And we hope that this podcast gives you a glimpse of what God is doing in us and in the Eau Claire community. Thank you so much for tuning in. Well, good morning, family. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have, if I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Justin. I have the pleasure of serving on staff here at CU Refuge. And like Jay was said earlier, we are a young and growing church that is here to connect all to Jesus to connect them to his greater family and commission them out as kingdom citizens all over the world. I'm not only excited to be with you all this morning, um, to, to worship together um, and to be with you all, I'm excited to open God's word with you this morning. And just as Carl said, and as we sang together, we do need God to be with us as we read his word and as we study his word. So will you pray with me that God's Spirit will be with us and that he will illuminate our hearts and our minds so that we have a true understanding of what he has for us this morning. Lord Jesus, we do come to you, and Lord, we echo what we sing and that we do need you every hour. So Lord, we come to you now wanting to need you, wanting to be desperate for you, wanting to be satisfied in you, Lord Jesus. Father, you tell us that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word endures forever. Lord, you also tell us that your word is the gospel or the good news that has been proclaimed and recorded for us. Father, we do thank you that your word will never fail, and we thank you that it contains the best good news that this world has ever heard. And Father, I pray this morning that your spirit will help us to put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy and envy and slander so that we can be like newborn infants who desire the pure spiritual milk of your word. Lord, may your spirit remind us of the good news that your word contains, how your word still applies to us today, and that you will help us to understand it so that we will grow up in the knowledge of our salvation. Lord, we have tasted and seen that you are good, so may you refresh us this morning May you open our hearts and our eyes and our minds to you again so that we can continue to taste the rich goodness that you have shown us. Christ Jesus, you are indeed in our midst. You say that you stand in the congregation and that you are the great teacher. So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you will teach us this morning. God, I pray for myself that every thought I have, that every meditation on my heart and that every word I say, Lord, will be pleasing in your sight so that you may be glorified this morning so that you will be known this morning, and so the hearts will be drawn to you to have a greater affection for you, Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. The title of today's sermon is Family Court. Family Court. Over 25 years, one TV show has changed the way that we see legal proceedings. First airing in 1996, Judge Judy was a reality-based court show that centered on Judge Judy Sheindlin. I think that's how you say that, a small claims and family court judge uh, who would often settle disputes between family members and friends. And one thing to know about the show is that all the cases that were presented were real, and there are some that are more serious where people were settling uh, different disagreements about rent or some property rights but there are other cases that were a little outrageous and maybe very outrageous. To give you one example of uh, one such case, there was a woman who hit a deer with her sister's car, and the sister got upset that the insurance money wasn't enough, so she sued her sister, and then the other sister got upset that her sister didn't eat the deer meat stew that she made from the deer that she hit, and so that's why she was taking her to court. And all of this shows how far people are willing to go to sue one another, or to get something from one another, even if it seems outrageous. But not only that, I think it shows how dysfunctional and disunified families can be. And to make matters even made more sad, it puts all this dysfunction, disunity, on public display for the whole world to see. And after watching some of these cases, I began to wonder if there was a better way to resolve the disputes that were occurring between these family members. In some ways, I began to wonder if there was a chance that these families could have resolved the issues on their own before taking it all the way up to Judge Judy's court. I mention all this because that's, or these are the very questions that Paul is asking as he's writing to the Corinthians. Over the past few weeks, we've looked at Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, and instead of seeing a church that boasts about the spiritual wisdom of God, the church has been plagued with many problems. Paul, in the first four chapters, speaks to the divisions and the rivalries that existed between the members of the church. He explains that groups of people were exalting the status of different leaders, saying that if we follow this person, that makes us better. And to counter that, he explained that we are to put leaders in the right place, not put them on a pedestal. And in fact, he tells the leaders that they are to demonstrate servant leadership, of putting the needs of the church above themselves, not wanting to take things from others to exalt themselves. And he says that servant leaders are to imitate him as he imitates Christ. To not fall into the trap of arrogance and pride, but living with humility and sacrifice. Paul then addresses the issue of church discipline as he received reports that a sexually immoral person was in their midst, that they were not cast out of fellowship. This is what JW addressed last week as he preached on chapter 5. And despite how serious and difficult and drawn out church discipline is, it truly is the most loving thing that we can do when someone is in unrepentant sin. Because the result or the, the purpose of church discipline is not to put someone out for eternity, but say we want you to be restored. We want you to come back into the fold of fellowship, to become more like Christ. And it's from this context of church discipline and the judgment that's happening within the church that brings us to chapter six. We've seen how a lack of spiritual godly wisdom has caused the church to idolize its leaders. And we've seen how this lack of spiritual godly wisdom is causing the church to harm one another as they allow lawsuits to run uncontrollably throughout their midst. And that's what we're addressing this morning. Paul opens up in verse 1 by stating that the main problem of the section, and he says, If any of you has a dispute against another, how dare you take it to court before the unrighteous and not before the saints? In other words, Paul is telling the Corinthians that they are not to seek the courts of the world to settle these disputes or these minor lawsuits between believers. Rather, they are to settle the the disputes within the household of God, between those who are of the same faith. He explains that the problem with the Corinthian church is that they are seeking the judgment of the unrighteous courts over the wisdom and the discernment of the saints, the family members that are committed under the larger banner of Christ. And because of the unrighteous courts or these Roman courts are not bound to the same standards as what God has put into place, he believes that these courts will not properly judge the disputes that are happening between the members of the family, the members of the Corinthian church. With this in mind, I propose that the main argument that Paul is trying to make in this section of Corinthians is for them to use godly wisdom to settle the disputes that are happening between these family members. And similarly, I propose that Paul is making the same argument for us this morning. That instead of seeking the wisdom of this world, or the supposed wisdom of this world, that we are to seek the wisdom that God has placed here to settle the disagreements and disputes that are happening, or that could happen here. And I want to be clear that Paul isn't saying that all civil courts and authorities should be given up entirely. This wouldn't make sense, as he tells us in his letter to the Romans, that we are to submit ourselves to government powers and government authorities. And this is especially true for Paul when he used his status as a Roman citizen to have a trial before a Roman governor Festus and before Caesar himself. Paul knew that the civil authorities had its place, but he's highlighting a different aspect of settling disputes to the Corinthians. And that's settling of these trivial disputes within the family, that they should be focused about what's happening inside before going to what's happening outside. And just as Paul sought out certain, certain civil authorities under certain circumstances, we should do the same. Earlier this week, a report came out from the Attorney General's office in Illinois. In that report, it said that there were almost 2,000 cases of child sexual abuse that spanned over seven decades in the Catholic Diocese of Illinois. The report concluded that there were 451 ministers that not only abused children, but the church went to great lengths to cover it up. And it's this utter evilness that should be handled by courts of law. And it's this type of evil that should be handled by the courts of law because we want true justice to be upheld for the survivors of such abuse. We need legal authorities and victim advocates and counselors to care for these individuals. And that the severity of the sin must be dealt with appropriately by using these civil authorities because the church is not equipped to handle that. Again, these legal cases that were presented in Illinois are not the type that Paul is referring to in the section of Corinthians. Instead, Paul is referring to more trivial legal disputes. And as such, he wants the Corinthians to understand how to live out the principle that Jesus taught in Matthew 18, what Jay taught, or touched on last week when he said, If your brother sins against you, go tell, or go tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have one, your brother. But if you won't listen, take one or two others with you so that the testimony of two or three witnesses, every fact may be established. If he doesn't pay attention to them, tell the church. Just as we handle the confrontation of sin by going to one another and speaking to one another, we do the same when it comes to these disputes, these minor disputes that may erupt between people. And as we handle these disputes internally, Paul is about to lay out his case as to why this is true. Look at verses 2 through 4 with me, and it says, Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the trivial cases? Don't you know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have such matters, you appoint as your judges those who have no standing in the church. Now looking at these verses, you may be thinking, Justin, isn't Paul contradicting himself? I mean, last week he said we aren't to judge the world. So maybe you hear this verse, you're thinking, how can we, or what do we do with this? Or how can we trust the Bible if there's this apparent contradiction in there? Do we, do we really keep going here? Like, how, how do we work this out? Well, friend, before we go too far down this road to think that we can't really trust the Bible or think that there's a contradiction, we need to take a step back to maybe take a deep breath and think about a few things first. As we approach these apparent contradictions, there are a few things that we need to remember. The first is that Paul tells us that all Scripture is inspired by God, literally that all Scripture is theopneustos, or breathed out by God. As such, because all scripture has come from God, it bears the divine marks of God. Moreover, Paul tells us later on in 1 Corinthians that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Because of these two things, you know that God's word being his revelation to his people, it will not contain errors, it will not contradict itself, that it's true. And that God doesn't want to confuse us, he wants to lay out exactly what he's trying to say so that we understand it. Jesus even confirms this in his high priestly prayer in John 17 when he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth as he speaks to the Father. That God's word is always true. It will always be without error. And because of that, we can trust that he's not, or God's not trying to contradict himself as he speaks to us through his word. So when you come to these passages of scripture that seem to be contradictory, you might have to do a little more homework or understanding of what's exactly happening. That as we do that, we let Scripture interpret itself. We look at other passages, other cross-references to see what's happening. And as we do that, we come to a greater understanding of what the author is trying to say to us. So to come back to our text regarding of how saints will judge the world, Paul here is speaking eschatologically, meaning he's speaking of the end times in mind. So Paul isn't saying that Christians will be judging the world right now. Instead, he's speaking of a time when Christ Jesus will come to judge the world and we will join him in that. In Daniel chapter 7, the prophet report records in the 22nd verse that a judgment was given in favor of the holy ones, being the saints, of the Most High. For the time had come and the holy ones took possession of the kingdom. To bring more clarity to this, Jesus speaks in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 26 and 27, saying, The one who conquers and the one who keeps my works to the end, again speaking of the saints, that I will give him authority over the nations, and he will rule, with, he will rule them with an iron scepter. So there is a measure where the saints will judge or rule over the world, as Jesus is saying, as the prophet Daniel was saying. But with that being said, Christ Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, meaning that he has the highest rule and the highest authority. Moreover, Jesus speaks in Matthew 25 that he's the one who will ultimately judge the nations, determining who will enter God's eternal kingdom of life and who will enter into eternal punishment. In light of that, whatever measure that Christ gives us to judge and rule over the world he will always have the final judgment and the greatest rule. His authority will always be superior to ours. He is the one who ultimately reigns both over heaven and earth, but in some way he allows us to reign with him as co-heirs. Continuing on down in Paul's argument, he says that the saints will also judge the angels. Unfortunately, this is the only place in Scripture that records uh, how God's people will judge angels. As such, we can't build up a whole theology or a whole doctrine on this one verse. But since Paul is connecting it with verse 2, it seems like in some logical way that we'll have the same type of ruling as the nations with angels. I don't know what that looks like. But in some mystery, God lets us rule over the angels. But all that let say, this should not detract us from the main argument that Paul is trying to make here. Notice how Paul is making an argument from greater to lesser. He's making the case that if the saints are to judge the world, the entire world, then the Corinthians should be able to judge the small, trivial disputes that are occurring between them. Narrowing the it down from the whole world, he says that if the saints will judge even the angels, they should be able to judge the matters in their present, everyday, mundane life. Then in verses 4 and 5, Paul concludes his argument by asking a series of rhetorical questions. If the Corinthians had the ability to judge the world and the angels, why would they appoint Judges over them who don't have such an ability. Why have they appointed the unrighteous judge to rule in their cases? Why is it that they, even though they have claimed so much about the wisdom that they know and following all these great people, don't have enough wisdom to settle the trivial disputes in their own midst? Why isn't that a single person can't arbitrate or settle those disputes when God's given them wisdom? Now you might be asking, why is Paul making a big deal about this? Why is he placing a large emphasis on the Christians settling disputes between Christians? Well, to answer this question, we first have to look back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses begins to speak to Israel after after they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. And as they're standing in the land of Moab, Moses recalls how the Lord allowed them to be as numerous as the stars in the sky that they allowed his people to prosper and to grow. But Moses, being one person, wasn't able to settle all the disputes that are happening between all these people. He was just one normal guy. So then what Moses did was he selected wise and respected men to be judges for these disputes. Then picking up in chapter 1, verse 16, he says, I commanded your judges at that time. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge rightly between a man and his brother or his resident alien. Do not show partiality when deciding a case. Listen to the small and the great alike. Do not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment belongs to God. In answering our question, the reason that Paul wanted the Corinthians to settle the disputes within the church family by members of the church family was due to the fact that God's people were always tasked to judge with righteousness and no partiality, listening to all the cases knowing that God will be the ultimate judge at the very end. This righteousness and partial view of judgment is the reflection of God's very character, and we as God's people should strive to do the same in our judgment. So family, whenever dispute that we may face between each other, our first priority is to settle the matter within the household of faith. There is no other place in this world where people are more likely to judge with fairness and righteousness than within God's own family. Yes, there, are, there is no perfect church, and yes, God's family is full of sinners, but I would rather take my chances to be with God's family for them to settle the disputes than to go outside these walls or to go outside to other places of this world. And if you look to the world, the wisdom that it has is foolishness when compared to the wisdom of God. We see this in the politics of the world, that the people who have many degrees and many letters behind their name. The ones who have the most experience about how to fix all the world's problems fail to unify a nation that's divided or unify countries that are so far down the road that they don't even know what to do. Family and college degree might give you a good nugget of information and the experience that you gain on the street might help you to figure out what comes next. But it can never compare to the richness and the power of God's wisdom. That's why Paul in his letter to the Romans explains with such joy and excitement that, oh, the depth and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. Family, God's wisdom is so deep that even the deepest ocean can't contain it. God's wisdom is so rich that even the tallest of mountains can't surpass how vast and mighty it is. This is God's heavenly and spiritual wisdom. And family, we have access to this heavenly wisdom through Christ Jesus, who has been brought down from heaven to come to earth. That the world's wisdom is foolishness when compared to the wisdom of God, and God's wisdom will surely help us settle any dispute that comes our way between our own family. So, friends, if you're seeking wisdom or if you're seeking help and trying to reconcile with those you're in dispute, dispute with, we turn to the Lord and seek him out and seek out his wisdom today. We give him the posture of desperation, saying, Lord, I need you. Just as we sang this morning, we say, Lord, I need your wisdom in my life right now. And continue to seek it out. God offers his wisdom freely but it requires first of us to ask him for it. And this is why the settling of disputes within the family, or this is the why behind the settling disputes within the family. But how is this supposed to play out? Or recall back from what Paul says in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. He says that he did not come preaching with persuasive words of wisdom, but through the demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power. This is all because Paul didn't want the Corinthian faith to be built up upon the futility of human wisdom, or how frail this wisdom is but rather on the strength and the steadfastness of God's power. He then goes on to explain that those who who have received the Holy Spirit, those who have been regenerated and placed their faith and trust in Christ Jesus, that God has come to them to, to, to seek out and save the sinner by regenerating them in the Spirit as they've placed their faith and trust in Christ. That he's given them the wisdom of him, not the wisdom of the world. Therefore, the Christian doesn't have to rely on the world's wisdom. Instead, they rely on the wisdom that has been given to them by the Holy Spirit as he explains things to them and instructs them in the way of the Lord. But, family, the Holy Spirit doesn't just give us wisdom. Paul, in the third chapter of his letter to the Ephesians, explains how the Holy Spirit strengthens us with the power in our innermost self so that Christ will dwell in our hearts and fill us with the fullness of God as we understand and comprehend the vastness of God's love. So family, when we're faced with situations when we are so desperate for wisdom or when we face the disputes that will eventually arise between us, we can rest on the power and the strength and the wisdom that God has in place inside of us through his Holy Spirit. God's Spirit will intervene as we desperately seek him. God's Spirit will give us the wisdom that we need to discern what to do whenever we disagree with one another. God's Spirit will teach us of the love of God that surpasses all earthly understanding so that we can then sacrificially love one another. And this is what we commemorate and remember on this Pentecost Sunday. The day when God's Spirit came down from on high to be with the believers and to dwell inside of them for all eternity. To give them power, to teach them of all the things of God. So family, when the dispute comes, we follow the way of God and lean into your church family so that God's Spirit can give you the wisdom that you need. We seek out the wise counselors and the wise saints that are within our growing church family and seek them for wisdom, or maybe to settle the dispute or the disagreement that's happening between you and someone else. This is the order that God has designed for his children to operate in, and it's in our best interest to follow in his design. Otherwise, our family would begin to look like the Corinthian church in verses 6 through 8, where it says, Instead, brother goes to court against brother, and that before unbelievers. As it is to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do this to brothers and sisters. In verse 6, Paul summarizes verse 1 and repeats the problem that is facing the Corinthian church, of brother going to court against brother, family member suing family member but he adds an extra little bit there. He says that this is happening before unbelievers. He says this because it's putting a bad witness to the world. In contrast to what Jesus told his disciples in John 13 of, I give you a new commandment to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Instead of showing Christ-like love, the Corinthian church has instead of, is instead showing world-driven lawsuits. Through their actions, they are showing a watching world that they would rather be divided and argumentative instead of showing sacrificial love. Family, we must preserve the unity of the church and show this Christ-like love to one another, especially as we face disputes and disagreements. We don't want to be a broken family. So let me ask you the question, where may the Holy Spirit be leading you to settle a disagreement or dispute with someone? Is there anyone that you feel as if you need to reconcile with, whether you sinned against them or they sinned against you? Next Sunday we'll be partaking in the Lord's Supper or Communion, and to follow in light of what um, follow in light of what we're told to, to go to the or to lay our gifts before the altar to reconcile with our brother or sister first, and then come to the altar. We need to do the same as we prepare our hearts for Communion. So I want to encourage you that there is someone you need to reconcile with, and take this next week and to do that, to do the hard work. It may be awkward, it may be hard, but can you trust that God's Spirit will move as you engage and follow what God calls you to, to reconcile? Can you lean into other people and say, hey, this is hard, but how can you help me into this as I settle this dispute or this disagreement? Will you prayerfully seek the Lord in that this week? Well, finishing out the section, I think we need to ask the question Does Paul really think it's okay for Christians to wrong one another or cheat one another? as we answer this question, but let's first remember that Paul is speaking to a very particular group of people about a very particular set of circumstances. The Corinthians were suing one another and seeking the legal judgment from a court system that operated outside the bounds of what God ordained. Therefore, in Paul's mind, the Corinthians were already defeated. They failed to live within the design that God has given them as they sought their own wisdom and walked in unrighteousness. For Paul concludes by saying that they were cheating one another and bringing wrong against one another. These are the markers of spiritual immaturity, cheating and wronging one another. In contrast, spiritual maturity is marked by a willingness to be wronged and cheated. Paul even mentions this earlier in chapter 4 where he says in verse 12 that when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we respond graciously. Though this might seem like foolishness to the world, it is wisdom in the light of Christ. We choose this form of spiritual maturity because it's an imitation of Paul who's ultimately imitating the Lord Jesus. And as he speaks of imitating Christ, Peter, in his first letter, writes about Jesus' suffering on the cross. And he says in verse 21, For you, speaking to the Christians, were called to this, being suffering, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you example, that you should follow in his footsteps. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was insulted, He did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Family, Christ Jesus suffered as God who was wrapped in human flesh. Being fully God, he didn't commit a single sin. There is no deception in his mouth, for all his words were 100% true. There was not a single blemish or a stain of unrighteousness upon him or in him because he was God. And, and as Christ Jesus was brought before the Roman court, and as he eventually hung upon the cross, he wronged no one. That even though insult after insult was thrown upon him as he hung on the cross, and he was scorned by the ones he came to save, he spit no insult back at them. Instead, in his suffering and in his humiliation, he entrusted himself to his Father, the one who will always judge justly. Then as Christ Jesus hung shamefully on the tree, he took upon himself my sins and your sins, and then applied his righteousness to those who have placed their faith and trust in his saving work. And even though he died a physical death, the death that we all deserve, the grave couldn't hold him down. That Christ's Spirit rose or God's Spirit rose Christ up from the grave so that we can declare with boldness and confidence that it's by his wounds that we have been healed, that we've been healed from our sin and our unrighteousness so that we will live for righteousness' sake in the power of God's Spirit. Christ healed us from the curse of sin and death, that we have returned to him, and now he is our great shepherd and the overseer of our souls. So family, if there's ever a moment in your life when you face the hardship of lawsuit, whether it be from a Christian a church or from another person or some other group, we can rest assured that your present suffering will only be light and momentary. That you can rest assured that just as you have been insulted or cheated or wronged, you can always entrust yourself to the God that will ensure his justice will always be brought down. That his justice will always have the last word. You can rest assured that Christ himself in the fullness of his humanity has not only experienced what you're facing, but he has conquered it once and for all. Amen. Family, as you walk through the perils of this world, your great shepherd is walking right there with you, alongside you in the valley of the shadow of death, where his rod and his staff will give you comfort. And as he's walking beside you, the heels that have been inflicted against you, he will ultimately heal those things. And he, as the overseer of your soul, will ensure that not one hair will fall from your head without his say-so that he and his strength and his power will ensure that nothing will snatch you out of his sovereign hands and that nothing will separate you from his great love. Family may be difficult now, and the battle, the battle may be long, but the victory is on the other side. Yeah, yeah. For your Savior will surely lead you to the green pastures in the still waters so that you will always enter into his rest. This is our hope, and this is what we cling to as we face the disputes that happen among us and disputes that happen to us. This is the message that allows us to press on and pursue reconciliation, even in the event that our own family will take us to court. No matter what, we can trust that God will always bring his justice, that he will always be with us, that he through his spirit will give us the wisdom that we need to not only settle the disputes, but the wisdom and the endurance and the steadfastness to, in, to continue to push through no matter what comes our way. you pray with me? Father, we praise you and thank you that you have indeed given us a way to settle the disputes that may arise among us. For Lord, we give you an even greater praise that you, through your son Jesus, have given us the ultimate way to settle the dispute that exists between us and you, which is the judgment for sin. Father, I pray today that through your Holy Spirit you will help us to know more of Christ's work for us, Lord, I pray that your spirit will apply the things spoken of today so that we as your people will live as a people who want to quickly settle the disputes that come all for the sake of loving sacrificially and following in your footsteps. So Lord, be with us now. May your presence be felt. May your spirit convict and encourage. May your spirit refresh us. May you help us to worship you and all that we do this morning, Lord. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please stand and sing with us.